Hey there. This is Story Story Late Night, the positively shameless black sheep of our Story Story Night family, where you hear bleep-worthy stories on an unblushing theme recorded live. We need your support. Text the code STORYPOD to 44321. This summer, we are bouncing stories off a wall with tales told live on stage without notes or inhibitions in the walled yard of the old Idaho Penitentiary. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. Things are getting weird as we go off the wall with stories of Going Oddball recorded on July 27th, 2021 from our featured storytellers Tanya Cope, Chris Sunberg, and Faith Adiella. At late night, we don't need no thought control, but we'll take some dark sarcasm straight up. It's Late Night Stories. Go ahead and help me welcome Tanya Cope. Nothing more normal, natural, dare I say, mundane in Idaho in the summertime than to go to the river for a boat ride. Unless, of course, the adventure is led by a sanity-deficient alcoholic, (laughs) which would be my father. My father was one of that interesting Idaho breed lived up in the mountains. We were constantly hunting, fishing, foraging, learning survival techniques, you know, for when the Russians invaded. (laughs) This was the 70s and the 80s. So he was obsessed most of all, though, with fishing. In the Idaho waterways, the best way to fish is from a boat. But this man was the master of fiascos, the captain of chaos. Regularly, we would drive 12 hours to a camping spot to realize that we had no poles for the tent. No matches. One time, no food at all. And this man wanted a boat. My mother, being the intelligent and rational one in the relationship, consistently said no. They had three children and a mortgage and, of course, his bar tab to pay all the time. But then that's when the bellboy came into our life. A now-defunct company, uh, fiberglass, V-hull boats, one of the selling points of the particular model that we bought was... The gunnel and the enclosed bow were lined with styrofoam, rendering it hypothetically unsinkable. My mom said, I'm all in, because she knew my father. So very first day we had the boat, pulls into the driveway of our home, and we have to go to the river right now, like right now. All the kids get in the truck, one of the neighbor kids, off we go to Melba, to the Snake River, one of the most treacherous bodies of water that was closest to us. 
This is our first time out. We go to this boat ramp that is just slightly less steep as the ladder, and he's not used to driving this 16-foot boat forever to go down. Boats in the water forever to pull away and park the truck. Meanwhile, we're looking at the boat in the river and it seems to have a lot of water coming into it. And the water seems to be rising. We don't know anything about boats. Here comes my father from the parking. It's been 20 minutes. He's walking down. There's water in the boat. And he pulls the keychain out of his pocket. And, and attached to the keychain is a very uh, important component for large boats. It's called the boat plug. <laughs> because in larger boats, they put a hole in it on purpose. Because incidentally, water gets in and you need to be able to let water out easily. This had not been put in the boat before the boat was put in the water. But he was like, that's fine, that's fine. I will just go get the truck, back it back down. We'll put it on the trailer, pull it out of the water, let the water out. Another 20 minutes to walk up to the truck. Another 25 to back it down. And by now, we have a 16-foot boat full of a foot of water. We get the boat on the trailer. And this is when I realized that my father did, in fact, flunk high school. Uh, he missed that whole class day that water is heavy. <laughs> he pulled up entirely too fast. And there was a strange screech and a bang, and that was the sound of the winch completely failing. And that boat <laughs> stood up on its tail. slides into the river. Now, my father dealt with this situation the way he dealt with anything, and it was to completely panic. Uh, the truck had this ancient piece of technology called three on the tree. First, second, third, park all the way one way, reverse all the way the other. Leaping out of the truck, instead of throwing it into park, he threw it into reverse. <laughs> Ran over both of his feet, crushing all of his toes. The only good moment of the night that the truck did stall out going into the water, but here's our situation now. The boat is in the river floating away. The truck is in the river, dead, stalled. My father is lying on the concrete, screaming, clutching his legs. What more could go wrong? And it was as if God Almighty had an answer. <laughs> because in Idaho fashion, those beautiful microbursts that we have, the sky opened and buckets of water came pouring down from the heavens. Oh my God. The children, we fled under the bridge. There was a bridge nearby. And my mother, the rational one, the allegedly rational one, 
did the most insane thing I've ever seen her do in her life. She kicked off her Dr. Scholl sandals and dove into the water like Greg Louganis and started swimming after that fucking boat. <laughs> in years to come, I would ask her, what were you thinking? She's like, I had four children I was in charge of, a wounded alcoholic. We hadn't made our first payment and the boat had no insurance. I had to do something. So she's swimming after the boat. Uh, it's not sunk down enough that she can hop in. And the rope, the way it had snapped, it was inside the boat. She's trying to get in. She's being dragged. She's being waterboarded by the Snake River. And my father is leaping, limping along the side of the river like this. For God's sake, don't let your mother drown! My 14-year-old older sister, being the obedient child she was, she dove in. My mother boosted her up in the boat got him to the side of the river, got it tied to a tree, got the truck out of the river, got the boat plug from Daryl, <laughs> put it in the boat, bailed the boat out, eventually did get it up out of the river, got the water out, never went on our delightful boat ride. But in the thunderous silence that was the drive home, my mother looked at my father and said, the first F word I ever heard her say in my entire life. I'm never getting in that fucking boat again. <laughs> Which was a prophecy because they were divorced less than a year later. <laughs> my name is Tanya Cope. My friends have shortened that to Taco. Hope you have a great evening, friends. Chris Sunberg. Going oddball, the story of my life. There is really no going involved. I was just there. And I'm, I'm not, I can't really tell, I'm not really sure whether or not it's a, a feature of the way society is evolving or, well, that is to say, I can't, I'm not sure whether or not the celebration of my weirdness is a feature of the way that society has evolved, or if I've just learned to do it the palatable way, the acceptable way. Uh, Chris, the jolly weirdo, what is he doing on stage? He's lying on his back, making his feet sing creep by Radiohead. Oh, the hilarity, oh, the jolly weirdness of it all. I'm not sure which of those things it is. Uh, I figured we could answer that together. I could go through my life chronologically, we could take an inventory, see if that helps. So, I was born here in Boise. I'm told that's normal. Preschool, or rather, there's a daycare called Mary Jane's. Entirely wholesome. Nothing abnormal there. Uh, girls wanted to take their clothes off for me. And I was told my parents' divorce was not my fault. 
with diagrams and everything, so it wasn't condescending at all. Um, first grade. Nothing really to report, like some older kids followed me around the playground once and did everything that I was doing exactly as I was doing it. I thought it was neat. Second grade, nothing to report, really. Friend named Travis ended the block. He came out and played. Uh, teacher actually told my mom that th she thought that I had ADD. My mom laughed at her because, I think because she had seen me hyper-focus on something I was interested in. But uh, she took me to a psychologist anyway. The psychologist said, Chris is very smart. His brain is like a sponge. Expose him to everything that you can expose him to because he will soak it all up. And also his life is dominated by irrational fears. <laughs> I suppose just because like in the dark I could see demon faces flying at me. I didn't think they were real. I pretended they were real. Third grade, I moved to Utah, public school, yay. Uh, I didn't see anything wrong with picking my nose in class. My peers disagreed. What didn't happen was they didn't send a representative to take me aside to say, Chris, the picking your nose thing, uh, we know, we realize it's good for your teeth, but uh, please don't do it in class. It's disgusting. That didn't happen. No, what happened was anytime I was noticeable in any way, whatever I was doing was turned into a subject of cruel hilarity. I wasn't so much slapped down as ground down like a cigarette butt. Kids who would be my friends outside of class uh, said in class, could you pretend like you don't know me? I need other friends apart from you. I remember one time after, like, while we were waiting for the bell to ring at the door, everyone piled up. I turned around. One of the ringleaders was backing away from me with an expectant, cruel grin on his face. I didn't think of anything of it. The bell rang. I fell on my face, and everyone walked over me laughing, like he had tied my shoelaces together. I sort of just slinked off and felt small. The day that my mom took me out of that school, the principal invited me into his office to apologize. Thanks. And then my mom worked herself half to death trying to keep me in a private school. Specifically designed for gifted kids. It was called Realms of Inquiry. Unironically. So perfect. Wonderful. Great place. Five stars would recommend. That lasted until seventh grade, of course. Then I moved back here. Eighth grade, public school. Yay! I don't know. Like, there were kids that I hung out with. I don't know why we hated each other. Uh, the homeroom teacher was upset with me because I didn't look at her while she was teaching. I had to go to summer school because homework was physically painful. Of course, the first day of summer school, we were supposed to interview partners. I was fed up with small talk questions. What can you tell from a person by asking them where they came from, how many siblings they had? I asked, what do you think of that poster? Do you like Legos? The teacher was offended. She asked, why didn't you ask him normal questions like where did you come from, how many siblings do you have? Before I could answer, she said, uh, see, Chris thinks he's special, and he wants us to recognize that specialness and honor him for it.
I didn't go back. I found stoners. Stoners appreciate my special. Stoners love me. <laughs> High school. I found drama. Drama class. Where all the stoners and the special people are, really. I thought I found my niche. Uh, Chris the Jolly Weirdo. What is he doing? He's wearing goggles with the end caps of a phone handpiece instead of lenses. Oh, how amusing. Oh, the jolly weirdness of it all. I remember I decided to fall in love with a friend and like she was smart. We had a rapport at first. Uh, she was into it. Like we were walking home. I would make the grand romantic gesture. She said, how sweet. And then uh, she gave me a call, said she needed to have a serious conversation with me. She couldn't do it. She tried and she can't. And I would like to say that I responded. Well, no, I'll just say it. The, I didn't respond the way that one ought. I said, I could die. Uh, you should feel how this feels. And we had many conversations after that where she would propose like a, she would prefer a statement and I would very literally, my, literal mindedly interpret it and turn it back around into something not constructive. We'd go round and round. I made her very uncomfortable throughout high school. There is nothing in my life that I'm more ashamed of. Uh, moving on. <laughs> a thing about drama, drama class is Seniors, senior year, are supposed to direct one acts. Me and a friend were going to, but we were both flighty as hell, so it didn't come together. I still wanted to go to the cast party, because those are amazing. Uh, I came to the final performance of the one acts, asking, where's the cast party, can I get a ride? A lot of noncommittal, awkward answers. And then my friend offered me a ride. He was actually driving me home, saying nobody wanted me there. And uh, part of it was the fact that I had been obsessing with that girl. And good on them, because, like, protect your friends' safe spaces. But uh, it wasn't just that. It was, like, these people thought that my off-color conversational additions were not something I wanted to deal with. Uh, some people felt trapped in conversation. His brother didn't like my little interjections. I was more work to be around than they didn't want me at the party. Unrelated, not long after that, the vice principal invited me into his office. I didn't have enough credits to graduate. He suggested that I drop out. And the resource officer was there saying that a fellow student had said that I was building a bomb. The story was, for the one act, I was going to build a microphone for the Android. I told myself, I didn't know how, but I was carrying a box of electronics from class to class, and someone invariably said, what's that, Chris, a bomb? Ha, 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 ha. And one of my classmates believed I was capable of killing people. I did eventually get a diploma. And then around my 30s, thereabouts, my mom had read this article about Asperger's syndrome. She said I needed to read it. Asperger's syndrome, uh, uh, now autistic spectrum disorder. And as I read it, it described, like, the symptoms one by one, and I went, oh, oh, oh. 
And people have asked me, like, when I tell people that I'm autistic, uh, they ask me often enough, does that do anything? Like, do you feel better now that you're diagnosed kind of snootily as if I'm being oppressed? Like, do you, do you feel repressed by that diagnosis? And to tell you the truth, like, for most of my life, I thought I was a freak and a creep and it was my fault. But I'm not. I'm not more work to be around. I'm different work to be around. The nonverbal cues that I give off read differently. It takes time to get to read them. It takes time for me to read you, trust you. It's just a different investment, that's all. And to go back to the original question, uh, I don't know, I'm more skilled at masking now. I'm more skilled at seeming acceptable. And the language is more available now, more available to more people. There's more awareness now of autism. I can say, let's not go to that club. The loudness and the lights give me sensory overload. And I don't have any money anyway, so... <laughs> it's not a perfectly happy ending. I'm not totally fine. I'll get there. Thank you for your attention, though. Please help me welcome Story Story Late Night, Faith Adlia. Oh my God, did someone get a photo of that? Two biracial girls on stage together. Okay, I have to take a selfie because none of my friends in California believe this happened. Okay, so I'm not moving here. I'm just here for the month, so don't even worry about it. Don't even worry about it. Oh my God, Amos, you were so great. That was fantastic. Oh my God. I'm drunk. I hope I can remember my story. So <laughs> I'm going to be talking about my favorite oddball, who is my husband. And this occurred a little bit after we had gotten married, just kind of in that sweet spot where you realize you have all these kind of deep-seated kind of expectations about marriage that you weren't even aware of, particularly when you're in a cross-cultural marriage. And my husband is Nigerian, born and raised, and I'm Nigerian-American, oh, which is essentially American. Um, <laughs> and... Um, I use a little pigeon light, which you'll be able to understand, but the key word that you need to know is bushmeat, which refers to any kind of small creature that's wild that people catch and sell and eat for protein in the tropics. And you use that umbrella term because you don't really want to know what you're eating. <laughs> so not long after my husband and I had gotten married in Costa Rica, we're at home in California. <clears throat> I'm sitting on the sofa with the cats in my lap. My husband's off doing husbandly things. And I hear this, a crunch. It's the unmistakable sound of cat food being consumed. So I look down, and they're here. So what is eating cat food? So I reluctantly telescope off the back of the couch, and I look, and I see that eating cat food in our house is a possum. So within seconds, I'm standing on a carved wooden stool in the middle of the living room shrieking, because apparently this is what I do now. And dumb cats still sleeping. 
Husband, as it turns out, has been eating grapes over the sink in his boxer shorts. So he hears me call, scream and he rushes out and towards me and past me and out the living room door. Okay, now to be fair, as hashtag Nigeria's oldest bachelor, he'd been skittish about marriage. We dated every decade, in my 20s, in my 30s, in my 40s, and broke up every time a big commitment was required. Job relocation, grad school, cunnilingus. But this last time we'd gotten together, he had flown across, the, flown across country to Pittsburgh to woo me, and he deplained saying, we shall enjoy the weekend, and then on Monday, I shall make my closing arguments. <laughs> Hashtag not a lawyer. So on Monday, Monday rolls around, and he's like, behold, my bank statement, which is very Nigerian. So I looked at it. And he's like, behold exhibit A, my bank statement. Then he's like, behold exhibit B, which was a love letter I'd written him for Valentine's like 20 years ago. And he's like, A, I kept it. Two, you loved me once. <laughs> and then finally, he like slides his hands up under my skirt and he says, I finally learned to go where few African men dare go. <laughs> exhibit C. So despite the live demo, the deciding factor was me being offered a job that I hadn't applied for in Oakland where he lived. So I moved in, we moved in together, it's been about four years and he still doesn't seem ready to commit. In fact, he takes a six month job in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> you know. So I'm like one foot out the door and I think people tell him because then he says he's going to come back for my birthday and I should arrange some trip because he knows I love to take trips. So let's take a trip for my birthday. So I get a group on to Costa Rica because I could care less and I warn him that in between zip lining in the jungle and all the other stupid shit that Costa Rica has to offer, we're going to have a talk. So this does the trick. He proposes, probably because he wanted to avoid having the talk, and we get married on the beach our last day in Costa Rica. But now, clearly, the honeymoon is over. So I'm standing on the, the stool in my living room, rethinking my life choices. And he comes clattering downstairs, wielding a broom, and he's wearing flip-flops and one of those black Velcro support belts that construction <laughs> workers like, over his boxer shorts. So the possum takes one look at this and heads for my study. He follows. They crash from room to room to room. At one point, the possum is cornered behind our liquor cabinet in the living room, and I say, do you have a plan? Because all this is only going to work if he can actually die of fright. So this does the trick. My husband immediately, or the new husband immediately finds the largest cat carrier we have, and he puts it on one end of the liquor cabinet, and he motions for me to stop screaming, get down off the stool, and make myself useful, which I do. So I take the broom, and I bushwhack in the back, and finally the possum steps daintily into the cat carrier 
gives a little wave of distress and proceeds to give an Oscar-worthy performance of dying. <laughs> Alas, poor York. So, husband returns to eating grapes at the sink, and I'm like, uh, 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 not done. Um, we are not gonna have, we're not gonna keep a possum kenneled in our living room for per perpetuity. And he seems surprised to hear this. Oh, okay. So he comes and he catches the carrier, takes it out to the backyard and dumps it there. And I'm like, okay, better, but still, I, do you think it's really safe to have a, a kenneled possum in our backyard? Like, what if it calls friends and family? And he gets really excited about this. And he's like, eh then all the animals will see this one for prison. <laughs> and learn a good lesson. <laughs> it shall be a deterrent, though. I'm telling you. <laughs> Besides, this is a bush meat, nah? Now, if we'd be talking polar bear, and I'm like, no, 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 I don't think we'd be talking about the polar bear in the cat carrier on our patio. <laughs> So then he tries to switch tactics and he starts stroking the Velcro support belt all sexy-like. <laughs> Honorable Pumpkin, is what he calls me. You notice how I took care of things, like a real African husband. <laughs> so I let it go. Come morning, the possum, you know, everything fine in possum prison. The possum is either asleep or dead or pretending. Dumb cats, completely uninterested in the repurposing of their carrier. They go back to plotting ways to murder my husband and praying for opposable thumbs with which to carry out these plans. And I kind of forget until all of a sudden I look out the window and I see the new husband about to release the possum into the street. So I bolt out there and I'm like, no, you have to take it somewhere. It knows where food lives. So I can tell that he's about to launch into statistics about the low recidivism rates of possum prison. So I counter with a story about the incredible journey, a children's book or movie or both about like the dog and the cat and the other dog, I guess that's diversity in Hollywood, who trek across the United States on their own little paws in search of the assholes who abandoned them to start with. And I'm like really into it, like my performance is like possum worthy. I'm like wiping away a tear and you know, I you know, might have suggested or implied that the plucky terrier and the long-suffering Labrador and the sarcastic Siamese were in fact my pets. This does the trick. Husband's completely wrapped. He's like, oh, now I see why you love animals. <laughs> now, is a possum a rat or a raccoon? And I'm like, one, why are those our two choices? And B, no. And he's like, how can you tell? And I'm like, <clears throat> okay, so regardless of the tale, if we ever see a rat as large as a possum, it is the end of days. You are free to kill me. And if you loved me, you would then kill yourself. And a raccoon, I mean, you know, everybody knows what a raccoon is. A raccoon, you know, a raccoon's like a bandit. And he's like, what's that? And I'm like, oh yeah, right, um, a thief. He's like, eh? With a rusty old musket? 
And I'm like, no, 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 not a Nigerian thief, an American thief. You know, striped pajamas, little hat, uh, a mask, and he's looking at me like, oh, and a rusty musket is weird. So we've reached a standstill. And so he's like, okay. He picks up the carrier with the possum, puts it in the back seat of his car, and he's like, honorable pumpkin, come on, quality time. And I'm like, wow. 25 years of dating, off and on, four years of cohabitation, half a year of marriage has come to this, a possum release date. I'll take it. I get in the car, and we're driving towards the highway, and he's waxing poetic. He's like, at university in Nigeria, we studied all possums for 15 minutes. Great class. Now, I'm sensing some similarity is that ting related to this possum ting? And I'm like, oh yeah, an opossum is in fact a possum. He's like, ah, you have marsupials in America? I'm like, hands on the wheel, bad husband, hands on the wheel. So he grabs, you know, he grabs the wheel and we drive and we get to the estuary in one piece. And he gets out and he takes the carrier out and he gets all Lion King on me and he's like, this is where I should like to release my marsupial. And then he takes it down and he goes spew, like over a little, a little footbridge. He's like happy. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. So I've got my phone out and I've got you know, the camera on. And I've got it time stamped. And I'm convinced that people are going to look at us and think that we've like come to dump a litter of puppies or kittens or we're like serial killers in training and we've mutilated them. So I'm like taking photos of everything and following him. And he's like you know, skipping and hopping over the, over the bridge. And he gets to a beautiful green spot that's secluded. And he puts down the carrier and he flings open the door and he says, behold, your new ecosystem. And the possum's underwhelmed and proceeds to die. Well, pretend. So it does this Oscar-worthy performance, but it can't resist opening an eye and looking at us to see if we're buying it, which we are not. So the husband is like, hey, hey oh, possum, don't be plain possum. And he turns to me and he's like, that's how the professor started the class. I'll never forget it. So then he takes the carrier and he's like shaking it lightly and the rags tumble out and the possum tumbles out on top of that and the possum realizes the jig is up so it admits that it's alive and scurries into the underbrush. So his marsupial effectively returned to its new ecosystem. The husband is really feeling himself. So he's like, ah, honorable pumpkin. You have to admit, I took care of this like a real African husband. No, wait. A real African would have grilled the thing for bushmeat. I took care of it. No lives lost. And I have to admit, he is odd, but he went all out. He took care of it, and he delivered the African husband I didn't even realize I needed. And so I smile at him and I say, yes, let's go home and explore where few African husbands dare go. Thanks for listening. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise. Our theme song was composed by Ned Evett. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. 
Find out how to participate in our live show at www.storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. Also, check out our YouTube channel. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story. Thank you.